Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You can also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a bonus episode on Luca in the state of Pixar. We have another bonus episode in the works on the HBO series The White Lotus. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky. Tasha is currently meditating on a homemade bed of nails, but she'll be on the show soon. In her place, we're thrilled to have our old friend and colleague, Noel Murray, who worked with us at the AV Club and the Dissolve, and whose work can be found in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Polygon, and other fine publications. Noel, hello. My friends. <laughs> so good to see no. you all again, or hear you all again, I should say. Yeah. Well, yeah. Here, right. This is an audio medium. We, you're not That's actually right. seeing us. <laughs> we, you have to pretend that we're all in the dark. Um, so for the first time in over a year, we'll be discussing a new film that I, personally anyway, did not see at home on my TV or computer monitor, but one I saw the old-fashioned way on the big screen in a reduced capacity theater surrounded by people in masks. <laughs> now, normally I would do some scripted tomfoolery here about this week's pairing, but now that our year plus of quarantainment has mostly come to an end, I wanted to ask each of you what going back to the movies has been like. Has a year away changed your relationship to the movies and movie theaters? Keith, what about you? I'm happy to be back. It was the first thing I, you know, the first night I was fully vaccinated, I went to see a movie. It, it didn't really matter what movie, but I, I was I was glad I saw it. I saw Gunda at the Music Box Theater. I've been kind of trying to spread the love around by going to a couple of different theaters uh, to see movies and kind of see what it's like at the multiplex, what it's like at various other places. And um, it's been nice to be back. It's, I, I think in some ways the first moment of normality wasn't seeing gunda it was seeing quiet place part two a couple weeks later uh at a theater called the davis uh here in chicago which i love great place but <laughs> about a third of the way in someone decided to turn the flashlight on their phone on and look for something <laughs> on the floor for i'm not kidding 10 straight minutes until i finally said uh -uh, please turn the light <laughs> off <laughs> so um so you know we're back baby yeah <laughs> but uh, back the more things for, change the more they stay the same yeah, the bummer for me is that, that I want to take my kid to the movies. And I don't yet quite feel safe doing that. I, I have a feeling if she masks, she'd be okay. But you know, she's not vaccinated. She's under 12. So we're not doing that yet. Uh, uh, Noel, what about yourself? Um, I have, I've been once. I saw In the Heights um, uh, on opening weekend with my family, all vaccinated. 
Um, and it was nice. It was nice to be in a nice big theater again. I will say that um, before that, I actually did one of those rent out a theater things uh, during during the pandemic. My my wife actually for my for my birthday last year uh, got a theater uh, showing Tenet and invited mm. all of our friends and uh, about fourteen of us in a theater with masks and everything. And and that was really nice. So yeah, I mean, it's different for me because I'm not in a big city. I, I live in a smaller city in in a different, less cosmopolitan area uh, than you guys. So I don't get to go to art houses and things. Just just a multiplex, and I'm happy to have the option. Although I will admit, you know, during the pandemic, it was nice to be kind of on a level playing field with you guys, where whatever, <laughs> whatever was opening up where you were, I could watch on my TV, same as you could watch it on your TV. So anyway. that's interesting. I felt a little of that too, Noel, because I've uh, been in, in Michigan for the past couple of years. And before the pandemic started, you know, there were there were several podcast pairings we did that I had to sit out because I wasn't getting screening invites uh, here here in Michigan and I couldn't mm. see thing, things in time. So definitely, I, I relate to the, the leveled playing field a bit. And, and, I, and I relate to uh, In the Heights being uh, first time back in the theater because it was, was also mine and uh, nice. this, in this film... Um, uh, uh, Roadrunner, the film we're going to be talking about, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, was my only my second. So I have not been like necessarily rushing out at every opportunity. Um, part of that is because also like you, I um, am in an area where I there aren't any sort of beloved indie theaters that I'm dying to get back to. I'm, I'm actually planning to uh, hit up the music box on an upcoming visit to Chicago, and I'm very much looking forward to that. But having moved to a new area during the pandemic, I don't like have any real loyalties to local theaters. So I think my movie going choices have been, you know, born more of my theater going choices, I should say, have been born more of, of necessity than, a, you know, a real drive to get back into the cinema. And I will say, um, I I watched A Quiet Place uh, at home on, on Paramount <laughs> Plus streaming, and I feel fine about that. That is like <laughs> the exact kind of movie that I am totally okay not spending, you know, $30 to go see in a theater. I'm not ready to totally reject the uh, the sort of streaming paradigm that has uh, popped up uh, during the pandemic. I think there is some, uh, in certain cases, it is still maybe a preferable model. It's funny, though, that both you and, and Noel uh, saw in the Heights, which uh, which I assume both of you had easy access to on HBO Max. So that was a conscious decision yes, of like, absolutely. I yeah. want to see this movie projected. And it really is... You know, the, the only problem I'm having, I mean, is that uh, Hollywood is not putting out anything I want to see. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it, like other than in the Heights, it's a really bad summer movie season. And I mm-hmm. can't, I can, I can't even quite get up the energy to see F9. I, I think I may be yeah. uh, behind a few Fs, um, <laughs> but, but, but I did get out. I, I saw the 35 millimeter of, uh, of Touch of Evil at the Music Box is my first. And I've, I've been seeing a lot of art films in our house, a lot of things at Music Box, a lot of things at uh, Landmark, because just because of the movies are better. And it, 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 feels, it feels great. But there's also, we kind of established for a while here, kind of a family movie night every Friday uh, with, with popcorn and candy and, you know, so, something that was appropriate for the whole family. We kind of ran out of titles. <laughs> there's not that many movies that all of us want to watch, believe it or not. And basketball was on. So uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> it's good to be back. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, that on this podcast and on our bonus podcast and probably in, in print, we'll be talking about how uh, movie going has changed or is changing, but that's a, uh, something for another time. Uh, I want to add one weird thing. I went to see, I went to see Roadrunner at uh, an AMC 
uh, theater, and I wanted to use the what, what do you call the Coca Cola mix uh, mixing the freestyle. The yeah, freestyle. freestyle so I want to use the Coca Cola freestyle. Has anyone used one of those post quarantine? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I used one. Okay, did mine was it was touchless, so yeah. I had to scan a QR code, pick my soda out on my phone, and then press a button uh, to distribute the soda. Uh, and, and you know, you know, when my, my cup was full, I raised the button off of, off my phone. It was the weirdest thing. <laughs> oh wow, I didn't experience that. I had to touch a grimy old screen with so, my, so, my vaccinated so fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, yeah, you know, a classic movie-going experience. Uh, so, so, but we have we have uh, s- some business to take care of this this week. So, Genevieve, what do we have on tap for this week's set of episodes? We're going to be talking about two documentary profiles of difficult, iconoclastic men who had an uncomfortable relationship to their own accidental celebrity. At no point did Anthony Bourdain imagine that his passion for food could turn him into a world-traveling TV star, but the new Morgan Neville documentary Roadrunner follows his journey step-by-step, from line cook to chef to best-selling author to renegade host of TV shows like No Reservations and Parts Unknown. It also reveals the dark side of a troubled and contradictory man who took his own life. Much of that darkness also engulfs the life of R. Crumb, the underground comics pioneer who rode a countercultural wave in the 60s and early 70s, but was driven more by impulse than ideology. Terry Zweigoff's Crumb is an intimate and often unsettling look at Crumb's life and work, focusing on his deeply troubled upbringing and often controversial ways it was manifested into art. So this week, we'll talk about the outsider art and interior discord of Robert Crumb and Crumb. And next week, we'll keep on trucking through Roadrunner, which follows Anthony Bourdain's similarly unlikely ascendance as a public figure. Please join us. If I don't draw for a while, I get really crazy. I start feeling really depressed and suicidal if I don't get to draw. But then sometimes when I'm drawing, I feel suicidal too, so... What are you trying to get at in your work? Jesus. I don't know. I don't work in terms of conscious messages. I can't do that. It has to be something that I'm revealing to myself while I'm doing it, which is hard to explain. Which means that while I'm doing it, I don't know exactly what it's about. You just have to have the, the courage or the to take that chance. You know, what what's going to come out? What's coming out of this? I enjoy drawing, that's all. It's a deeply ingrained habit. It's all because of my brother Charles. It's probably safe to say that most artists imagine themselves getting to a point where their passions can lead to some form of public notoriety, like a movie premiere, or a popular TV show, or a best-selling album or book, or even just a sustainable career in self-expression. And if they can imagine those things, they probably also think about how they position their work within the culture following one path or another in order to satisfy their ambition. It's only natural, even for those who posit themselves as fiercely independent and outside the mainstream. No such lane existed for Robert Crumb, the underground comics artist known as R. Crumb, and it can't really be said that he blazed a trail either, at least not deliberately. Terry Zweigoff's documentary Crumb reveals an artist who seems driven by impulses that he seems to have spent remarkably little time reflecting on, much less modifying to make them more socially acceptable. He's like the eye of a hurricane, an oddly serene presence in the middle of the controversies and cultural turmoil that swirl around him. What the documentary makes clear is that Crumb, despite his evident talent, should never have been a household name. And it was a sheer accident of timing that the counterculture happened to pick him up and carry him along. And while fame seems to have rescued him from a considerably darker fate, 
Much of his art remains stubbornly fixed in a state of arrested adolescence, unchanged by public response. Without playing the role of armchair psychologist, Swigoff gives the viewer a window into Crumb's past and present that helps account for his vision, even as it doesn't turn away from the shocking misogyny and racism that bubbled up in his work. It took years for Zweigoff to gain the access and footage he needed to finish the film, and it's easy to see why Crumb would be reluctant to bring him into spaces that few people have entered, much less a camera crew. Crumb grew up in the projects of West Philadelphia and Upper Darby, the product of an extremely unhappy marriage that nonetheless yielded five children, three boys and two girls. We don't learn much about Crumb's sisters, who declined to participate in the film, but we do get to know his brothers, Charles and Maxon, who both suffered lifelong mental illness. All three were social misfits, abused at home and bullied at school, and all three would retreat into fantasy and drawing, which was the one positive inheritance from their father, who was a combat illustrator in the Marine Corps. Only Robert was able to parlay his talent into a sustainable career, drawing novelty cards for American Greetings in the early 60s before his Fritz the Cat strips set him on a different course. Swigoff isn't really interested in a conventional recounting of Crumb's career, however. He's more interested in understanding the primordial forces of Crumb's art, how they're informed by a traumatic past that's never lost its hold over him. Over the course of the film, we spend time with Charles, a recluse who still lives in squalor with his mother and beats back some terrible demons with old books and antidepressants. We also visit Maxon, an author and artist who lives in squalor in San Francisco and is shown meditating on a homemade bed of nails. As we learn more about the mental illness and aberrant impulses of his brothers, we might also suspect that Robert's life would have followed the same trajectory had the timing not been right. Even as a relatively functional adult, we can see how Robert has trouble relating to other people, including his children and the women who have passed through his life. Zweigoff makes the connections between Crumb's life and work clear, and he also finds a room for critics to process them and try to put them in context, particularly because Crumb himself is completely ill-equipped to do so on his own. The documentary does not tell us how to feel about Crumb's art, but instead leaves us with appreciators like the modern art critic Robert Hughes and detractors who point out the unchecked hostility some of his work shows towards women and people of other races. It left audiences with a lot to talk about in 1994, and it now leaves us with a lot to talk about in 2021. We'll start doing that after the break. When my father died in 82, my aunt gave me all this stuff that my father had sent her over the years, and one of the things was this book that he wrote, Training People Effectively. See, I'm not sure what he did for a living in the last years of his life. It had something to do with you know, employee motivation for this corporation that he worked for. It's a photo. This is what... <laughs> I was reading recently about this syndrome in Japan now that Japanese businessmen have this, something about some smiling disease where they have this like fixed smile on their face all the time. And I think my father had that. And the article said it was a sign of deep depression. <laughs> he didn't smile when he was home. The smile dropped as soon as he came home. He's a grim guy. Fought in the war and everything and just had a real hard-ass attitude about life and thought that my mother was molly coddling all of us, which she was. And all three of his sons ended up being wimpy, nerdy weirdos. It kind of broke his heart, I think. He wanted at least one of us to become a Marine. Standard first question for everyone. What, what's your history with Crumb and, and how does it look in the year 2021? Uh, Noel, let's, let's start with you. Well, uh, as somebody who is a lifelong comic book fan who read a lot of underground comics um, when I was in college, um, I saw this movie when it came out. Um, it was a big deal for me. And uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I remember when Crumb, I guess, played Sundance first. Is that where it first played? Yeah, you guys remember? Yeah. Well, no, did, did, did was it, wasn't Zweigoff, I read an interview you did with Zweigoff, Noel, where he was saying it got rejected everywhere, but, but That's maybe, correct. maybe it eventually um, got it. I feel like it won something at Sundance, though. Whatever festival it played at, I know that Cisco and Ebert talked it up, and I was very excited about it as somebody who was a huge fan of, you know, Underground Comics and R. Crumb. I went and saw it right away. It blew me away. It's a film that um, I have watched, I think, probably about eight, nine, ten times in my life. Wow. Um, I have shown it to students when I taught a comic book class. And I'll talk more about that later because it was kind of an interesting experience about their reaction to the film. And uh, I think it still is a, is a really amazing film. There's a, there's a certain kind of personal quality that Terry Zweigoff brings to it as somebody who knew R. Crumb and was friends with him and saw things that other people could not see just from the comics alone. And so I, 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 it's, it's, I think a film that today is troubling in a different way than it was in 1994, 95, that whole era. But it, uh, it, it's still, I think, you know, extraordinarily effective at showing this person's life and his art and where it came from. I'll go next since I'm at the exact opposite end of the of the spectrum from Noel, and I'm I'm actually very curious to hear how you how you taught this film because this was my my first time seeing it, and my my experience with Crumb with R. Crumb's work, I think, uh, was almost exclusively through uh, my time at the AV Club and reading stuff that Noel wrote as well as, as Keith. You know, like I, I kind of absorbed his his work and uh, attendant notoriety through your guys' writing. So I, I, I did not see this film when it came out. I, uh, <laughs> as I always do, I will, I will point out that I was 10 when it came <laughs> out. Or wait, sorry, uh, maybe maybe 11. Um, oh, but, then 11, uh, you should have seen it, right? Yeah, I mean. right. <laughs> I, I kind of knew it by reputation, but, you know, just not having a super strong connection to Crumb as an artist and having some idea of the the notoriety around him and, and the film, I think it just, uh, I wasn't compelled to seek it out. And it's a difficult film to watch, I think, for your first time if you, you know, are, have sort of limited context and uh, very limited appreciation for the the man behind this work. I think um, I felt myself kind of checking myself throughout, you know, to focus on this movie as a piece of filmmaking because, you know, very early on, I realized that I was not going to connect to the subject of this film on any on uh, a level other than than distaste. So I think once I kind of like accepted that, it was easier to tamp down these sort of flare ups of disgust I felt th th throughout the film and, you know, focus more on what Zweigoff is, is, was doing and sort of the, you know, the ethical complications uh, there as well as it relates to the Crumb, the wider Crumb family. There's a lot to think about in this film, and it's it's a rich it's a rich text as we as we say, <laughs> but I think it's one that has a a really big hurdle that you have to kind of go in with a maybe a clear idea of your own relationship to to Crumb's work, and I didn't really have that going in, and was kind of forming it as I watched it, and it it made for a difficult watch, but an interesting one. Yeah, I think he's Wagoff is good at at like 
kind of slowly immersing you in, in the full uh, upsetting, full, the, all the upsetting qualities of, of Crumb's work. Like, you know, you deal with one, you deal with the the uh, misogyny in one, and then a little bit down the line, you deal with the, the racist uh, imagery. And I don't know, I think it's a great film. It's a really uh, terrific approach to it. And, and I, I remember how I felt at the time was basically looking at Crumb's work as what he needed to do to survive whatever psychological trauma that had damaged the rest of his family. And I see, and, and it, it, it is, it's tough to take. I, I admire his work though. I, I, I admire the unfilteredness of, of his, of his life and, and, and his work at the same time. Uh, you know, and I think the fact that he is so open about who he is and makes no attempts to disguise his impulses and, and where they, where they, you know, where they come from and how they find their way into his work. I think that goes a long way toward making him a more sympathetic figure in some ways. Yeah. It, it's tough though. Um, because now you look at it and, and it is, it's, it's a lot of upsetting imagery and I'm not sure it quite plays the same way. I know it doesn't play the same way in 2021 as it played in 1968. Um, and I think 1994 was, was kind of a different time, time as well. I saw Crumb more as a historical figure because I felt like, you know, he's, he's still works today, but I felt like what had really been important had been the way he pushed, you know, kind of like the Sex Pistols, or, or kind of kind of broke down boundaries for others to walk yeah. through with his earliest work. I mean, I, I saw it, of course, you know, as soon as I could in in '94. Uh, that was that was back when I think Noel and I it, were you out of Athens at that point, Noel? I think in '94. Yeah, I was in Nashville. Nashville, yeah, but, I, but at that point, I was, I guess, a senior in college and, and doing frequent kind of you know trips from athens to atlanta to, to see a bunch of art films at, at once and i think crumb was part of that trip so i saw it as soon as i could and, and admired it greatly then and admire it greatly now Zweigoff's approach is just uh there's a standard way i guess of, of presenting an artist's life or any doing any kind of biographical documentary um, you could really sort of lean on a TikTok of events and i think Zweigoff tries to avoid that as much as possible. I mean, I think you, you do get a sense of the progression of his work, you know, that it does take you through that, but it does so in kind of a subtle and offhanded way and really winds up burrowing into the psychological aspect of Arkham and, and his brothers and that whole sorting through that entire mess. I mean, and, and it takes you, the camera just simply takes you into spaces that you're shocked to be in that, that nobody has seen. I mean, nobody's been in Charles Crumb's room, but his mom really, and maybe Robert sometimes, but here we are with it, with a camera and, and everything is, is unfiltered and it's unfiltered in, in every sense. It's unfiltered in the, in these conversations that we end up witnessing. And then of course the, the work itself is unfiltered and, and, and it's fascinating to see, you know, an artist who is completely, instinctual who, do, who doesn't try to doesn't seem to ha, be capable or even or willing to filter his work through self-reflection it's just raw it's like an it's the id i think as someone described it and and uh and it makes you think about like other artists you know and how do, how do they work and do they feel any responsibility for the things they put out there i mean because plainly <laughs> some of the stuff he was doing if he reflected on it at all was just repulsive so it's interesting like if he had those instincts that he would check that and just do the work in a kind of a pure way 
as far as the like TikTok biographical aspect, just the, one sort of exception that I think proves your point that I wanted to point out is the the very early scene where we see him talking to, I assuming a college mm-hmm. uh, group. Uh, it's not we're, we're not told exactly who these kids are that he's talking to, but he is sort of presenting mm-hmm. himself and his work and why he's talking to them. So it does give us that sort of baseline biographical info, but it does so through his words. We're not getting it from, you know, one of the art critics or contemporaries that we see throughout the film. We're not getting it through on-screen text. We're getting him talking about himself and his work and not exceptionally eloquently or, or, or deeply, you know, and it's kind of like sets the terms for the rest of the film as far as how Crumb himself is going to engage with his work throughout. Yeah, I mean, the things he brings up in that uh, speech to the kids are the things he is most famous for, which he is, you know, in retrospect, embarrassed by, you know, the things that, that made him popular, like Fritz the Cat and Mr. Natural and the Big Brother and the Holding Company album cover, you know, all the things that made him kind of a figure of the 60s, which he never really wanted to be. And so he kind of rejected that for the rest of his career. Um, you know, I, I found it a very interesting approach to kind of do that at the beginning, and then go into the stuff that Zweigoff is clearly more interested in which is the Crumb family um, and their dynamic. I interviewed Zweigoff, I think, twice. I know I did for the AV Club. I think I also interviewed him for the Nashville scene when the movie first came out and talked to him about that a little bit. And, you know, uh, he was friends with Crumb and they, they were in some similar circles as, as, uh, as jazz fans. And, and, you know, I think Zweigoff was fascinated by Crumb's art, but I don't think that really he wanted to make a movie about a cartoonist. I think mm-hmm. he was fascinated primarily mm-hmm. by the brothers, these, these three people, and also Aileen, um, you know, uh, Robert's wife, Aileen Kaminsky Crumb, and kind of the way they, they react to the world. There's a certain kind of cadence to their voice, if you watch the film, that they kind of all fall into at a certain point where they're, everyone's always complaining. It's kind of, this, their voice kind of like, you know, goes really high and nasal and, uh, you know, they're mm-hmm. kind of like, it's like a constant kind of stream, you know, coming from all of them, like all the brothers and, and Aileen have the same voice. But they also have kind of a smile on their face the whole time. And it's sort of this, like, how do they process this world that they find ugly and disappointing? And the way they do that is by kind of standing aside from a little, a little bit and, and commenting on it. And I think that's what I, I think is Wegoff, who also has a similar sensibility in his own work, as you can see in films like Ghost World and Bad Santa and his other documentary about uh, Louis Bluey, that this is, I think, what I think drew him to Crumb even more so than the comics. I will say that, though, it does depict the art in a way that kind of gives you a sense of what it's all about. One of my favorite sequences is when he is in San Francisco sketching, and the montage is just of people that Mm -hmm. swag off his catch on his camera, but they they look like our crumb drawings. Like you spend enough time with the guy with the rat or the mouse. Yes, yeah, (laughs) but I mean, you spend enough time with his art and like how he sees the world at that point that you kind of have your our crumb filter on. It's like, oh, I can see how exactly how these would be turned into to drawings. Yeah, Uh, and it's fascinating the way he processes memories too i mean the, the the bit where he's drawing sketches of all of these girls from his yeah. yearbook and commenting on his memories of of them one thing i'm interested in because we do have some some comics experts here uh noel and and, and keith Noel's mo- no, noel I think noel has, has read a lot more crumb crumb than i have I've, yeah. I've, I've i've dipped in but but um i also i also found that it's helpful that you can read around the parts of crumb you don't want to hear, yeah. find too disturbing to read well which, uh, which, is, is, which i think is referred to in the film uh, trina robbins is interviewed at length and she talks about how disgusting she finds a lot of his work 
And she contrasts it specifically with what she considers to be the joyousness mm. of his mid to late 60s work, where it was more about commenting on the absurdity of America and mascots. And, you know, and there was a fun to it that she, you know, kind of wishes that he hadn't abandoned as his film work got darker and more cynical in the 70s. Yeah, but I was curious, Noel, I mean, you know, given, you know, I mean, you were exposed to his work. I think before seeing this documentary, I mean, how, how did the documentary, I guess, shape your understanding of him as an artist? Did you see his work differently, I guess, after seeing the film? I saw a little bit more lightness. This is going to sound strange given how dark the film is. A little more lightness to Crumb himself. Like if you just read his comics, they, they, there is, especially if you kind of follow the progression from, you know, the, the psychedelic comics to the ones in the 70s where it, they do get, you know, perverse and they do get... Uh, um, they kind of depict America as kind of rotting at the core. You would get the sense that he was just a dour individual. And I do think in this film, you get the sense that he, in his own way, is, I don't want to say well-adjusted, but maybe better adjusted than, than you might think just from, just from looking at his work. Um, but I mean, you know, one thing about R. Crumb is that he was one of the pioneers of um, uh, autobiographical comics. So, you know, if you've read a lot of his comics, you kind of, I kind of already knew a lot about him because he kind of put it all on the page before. Mm -hmm. um, so the question for Zweigoff is, what do you pick and choose from that? I mean, what, what parts of his story do you tell to kind of, you know, uh, piece the whole life together? And I thought he did a really good job of being both comprehensive up to that point in time, but also kind of trying to tell a story about what he thought was important about the pieces of his life that made it into his work. I think that focus on Crumb's like interiority and like his, the the autobiographical aspect of his work is really where a lot of my like struggles with this film came from. And I know that's like kind of contradictory to the focus of this film, but like that interiority came across as so self-centered and without any generosity to anyone around him including his, his brothers. You know, there he just felt like such a mean individual, you know, and spending that time in his head and his thoughts like that scene where he's drawing the women from his from his high school. Like, yeah, it's cool to see like the actual pen on the paper and that coming across. But the way he's talking about them and throughout the film, the way he talks about women is ugly and just like not even just women, like anyone who he he just like looks down on so many people or on everyone around him. And even like his brothers, when he's like talking to Charles, he has just like this constant refrain of nervous laughter. Like he's, it came across to me like he was amused at watching Charles like flounder on screen or on camera because they did have this very competitive relationship. And like right at the top of the film, we have a, a phone call of him, you know, asking if he can bring a camera to you know film charles and it's like no he doesn't want that and then a few scenes later it's happening and it just like it gives you the sense right up top that like this isn't something that anyone is getting anything positive out of other than robert and i guess zweigoff who like got good footage out of it but he uh robert just seems to like take a perverse pleasure in other people's discomfort which is like very I think central to his work, but again, difficult to watch. It feels like a defense mechanism a lot, a lot of, oh, a lot yeah. of times with him, and it, you know, and uh, and it, show, it manifests itself in the way that you describe, and I think it also manifests itself as a way of to deflect criticism and in what other people have to yeah. say about his his work. I mean, he doesn't, you know, I mean, there is some of his work elicits incredibly strong 
negative reaction. And I think he's seems to be so accustomed to it that it just bounces off him. Like, like you could say the worst thing to him about, about how this, you know, disgustingly misogynist or racist his work is, or some particular work is. And, uh, he's weirdly serene. <laughs> Or unwilling well, to even engage with the question. Yeah, and, and also to engage with, like, you know, as, as you mentioned, Genevieve, to engage with the people around him at all. Like, there's also that scene where, where you know, he's, I guess, in a comic book shop and he's sketching. Mm-hmm. And people are trying to talk to him about his work and he doesn't, have, doesn't really want to say anything to them, doesn't really want to acknowledge, you know, their, their fans who, who are there to see him. And he doesn't really seem to, you know, react to that in any way. That, and I, I think it's important that's early on because it kind of establishes just who this person is. And, and uh, you know, I think you, it also kind of establishes you kind of, as the, 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 the fan talking to him kind of learns, you kind of have to engage him on his own terms. I mean, he, he doesn't shut the conversation down. He just, you know, he doesn't want to sign his autograph. He doesn't want to talk about what he wants to talk about. I imagine, you know, it, it, as frustrating as it is, I, I think that is kind of the art crumb experience i think i think Mm -hmm. you know you you know you know what you're going to get um i mean i I, what i find refreshing is the wrong word but but he's definitely someone without any any facades he's he's he is who he is it struck me as something that something that robert altman would say about his work and i know noel is also a robert altman expert so maybe i got this quote wrong but i remember robert altman saying uh something to the effect that he likes to read uh, reviews of his work so he can know what he did <laughs> you know and, and, and it's like i feel like that's kind of crumb's approach too and i don't know if he's even interested in hearing and knowing what he did i think he's just follows his impulse and is completely unapologetic about it and unreflective about it yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, I don't think he cares what critics say or is like, you know, looking for validation. I think he's just doing what he does. And it just so happened that what he was doing was able to, you know, to sell. And so he could actually have this very good life where he could live in this, you know, countryside in, in California with his wife and his daughter and then move to France by selling a bunch of artwork. And, you know, I mean, I guess it kind of depends upon how you look at what he was doing. And, and, and maybe that's kind of fundamental to be to whether the, the film itself is worthwhile is whether you think that what he was doing was worthwhile. And, and it depends upon how you frame this as, was he making popular culture? Was he making comics in the same sense that Marvel was making comics? Uh, in the same sense that, you know, people make television or make movies? Or was he making comics in the same way that someone might do a painting? Some kind of piece of, you know, grotesque fine art that would hang in a museum. And I think if you- A Bregel, at- perhaps? Well, I was going to say Bregel, but I, I was afraid, yeah, to be honest, I was, I was going to mispronounce it. That's my fear. So I didn't say it. <laughs> but I was going to say Bruegel. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Anyway. But yes, exactly. So, 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 you know, how, how he, what you think about his work and, and the tradition that he belongs to, you know, may have some effect on whether you think what he's doing is worthwhile. Well, I think also maybe in some ways the work is done a disservice by knowing more about Crumb because if you just saw this flood of racist, misogynist in, uh, images, you could say this is a depiction of the underbelly of, of the American culture, you know, artist depiction of that. And it, 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 we have like this, you know, perverse little weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who, who, like, who can't who can't explain it? Like that that scene where he's talking about the N word hearts uh, strip, you know, yeah. and talking about how it just like kind of came. Was, was that one of his LSD in, induced uh, ones? I, I, I think I don't know. I, I I lost track. But you know, he's kind of asked to engage with the you know the criticisms of it, and he just falters. Like he it, whether he's 
unwilling or unable to talk about his work that way is is kind of unclear. But I also real quick want to push back a little on the idea that like he wasn't looking for validation because I keep thinking of that scene at the art gallery when he's standing there listening to people talk about how great he is, like with that little mm-hmm. smile on his face, you know? <laughs> sure, and I th- yeah. yeah. And I think that Crumb did enjoy receiving positive validation for, you know, this brain vomit that he very memorably like <laughs> translated to pen to paper, you know? Um, but when it comes to any sort of negative feedback, then it's just like, it's just him, you know, you, you can't really explain it or talk about it because it's just his his it on the page, you know. So that tension, I think, kind of really, really rubbed me the, the wrong way, the sort of uh, happily taking positive uh, adulation, but not really even considering, uh, you know, critical feedback as something he can engage with. One point of view that I, I think is important to talk about, you know, and with regard to the criticism too, is is Terry's Wygoffs. Like, what is he? You know, because he's mm-hmm. the one making this documentary. He's the one choosing what subjects to include, and of course, he includes the voices of of, of critics and of people who who are currently and formerly a part of Crumb's life. And and he has made a film that I would say would be pretty uncomfortable for crumb himself to watch i think i think noel you asked zweigoff about this in an interview and and uh i think zweigoff was saying that crumb was pretty unsettled by by the yeah. film uh so h- how would you define his point of view and, and and i'm curious about the the perspective about his incorporation of of critics and how, how you think that kind of works in the film's uh, favor yeah it definitely works in the film's favor i don't i don't i think if he had made this film and had not included say trina robbins mm-hmm. and her pushback which i think is very you know she is not made fun of she is not put in the film as a shrill voice she's not like you know the that simpsons uh you know uh with the marge squirrel you know coming in to say you know uh, to, com- to complain about the violent cartoons no I, th- I think i think that she is given you know a platform to explain her objections and she explains them very well I will say, having interviewed Zweighoff, that he himself does not have those objections at all. Um, uh, at least not when I interviewed him in 1995 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, that he did not, you know, he finds Crumb's work uh, fascinating and, you know, often very funny and is not bothered by the, the, by the, by the violence, you know, and the misogyny and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so, so I guess good, good for him for, for including, you know, the, the other voices. Cause without that, I think you would have a film where you were like, well, no, wait a minute, you know. And, and I think it's, I mean, I think we, we talk about, you know, the, the grotesquerie of a lot of his work and that's important. But I think the film also makes it clear that he has, he has a range. Um, the mm-hmm. film isn't, you know, isn't just about the work he does that is repellent. It's also about the work he does that is, uh, silly and satirical and, you know, and beautiful, I think at times as well. Um, I, I think, love his portraits of old blues artists and jazz artists. Those, those are just really just, you know, just seem like terrific you know, ways to honor these people and, and, and done with so much respect. Yeah. And, and there's that beautiful sequence where they illustrate his classic cartoon that was showing America progressing from, you know, mm, uh, that uh, was beautiful. Ver- yeah, yeah. Verdant fields to, you know, mm. to power lines. So, you know, I mean, there is, there's a lot of you know, range to his work. And if, if his work had just been nothing but the negative stuff, then again, I think you would have to question, well, why is this person having a film made about him? Um, so, you know, I guess the good thing is that he, that Swigoff did not shy away from the controversial work or the controversy. He's kind of an interesting 
I mean, maybe the only space he could be in to make, to even make this movie, somebody who is familiar enough with, close enough with, with, with Crumb and, and appreciative enough of his work to, to get the access that nobody else could have. But also, you know, as, as a person has, is at least one stop removed, at least can, can, can say, at least can, can say that he needs to have other voices in this film that can kind of give a different perspective on Crumb's work than we're getting from the man himself. What I'm curious to ask you, you know, because you, you sort of promised this <laughs> at the yeah. open, you know, you've taught this to uh, students and said they had an interesting reaction to it. What, uh, what was that like? Yeah. So I taught a comic book class where I, you know, showed a I showed the kids a wide variety of work from, from newspaper comic strips to superhero comics to underground comics and alternative comics. And so there was, you have to, you have to include crumb. That's part of the whole pivot point in comic books from the late sixties onward. And I thought that it would be a good you know idea to show the documentary over two class periods. And uh, after showing the, the first half <laughs> uh, in class period number one, um, there were about uh, four or five students who did not return mm-hmm. uh, for the second to half. To the class or for the second they, part? They came back to the class for the rest of the semester, but they didn't come back for part two of the movie. And they, they said that they were too offended by part oh, one. Okay. And, you know, at the time it would kind of shatter me because it didn't even occur to me that people would be bothered by it. Now, of course, looking back on it, what was I thinking? I mean, obviously <laughs> people are going to be, 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 you know, that's kind of the, one of the points of the documentary is to really kind of unnerve people. And these kids were like, you know, 18, 19 years old, you know, so um, I should have, I should have been more thoughtful about it. And nowadays it would be like, I would have given a million content warnings before <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and probably wouldn't have shown it at all, quite frankly. But certainly at the time it was like, you know, it was a, it was an eye opening experience for me. And it was a film that had real critical and commercial life. I mean, this was a, a thing yeah. in 1994. For those of you who kind of experienced it in in real time, how much discussion was there around sort of the ethics, I guess, of bringing Charles and Max into this film? I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to mention that earlier. Um, There was quite a lot of discussion actually at the time as to whether Charles in particular was really competent enough Mm -hmm. to to have agreed to have been filmed or whether that he whether he was kind of coerced into appearing and whether, whether the film is kind of like gawking at somebody who was clearly mentally ill. And, you know, the, the whole story of, of Charles and Max, you know, both of them had some very, very dark chapters um, in their lives. So the film kind of, you know, brushes past, but maybe a little too quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, neither of them were, were beyond being mentally ill. They, they, you know, they hurt people, you know, in their lives. And that the film doesn't really get into that too much. So there was a lot of discussion at the time about whether it was ethical to kind of, put them on film. Those are, again, valid questions to have. Um, I guess the question then becomes, is it ethical for us <laughs> right. you know, to watch it now? It's too late now. You know, the, film, the film is out there. Um, and I, I think there's some value in seeing you know, um, how these three brothers each reacted to um, you know, the life that they led. Um, and also the absence of the two sisters is also yeah. this, this remarkable mm-hmm. at the time, too. Yeah, I think the absence of crucial voices is something that will maybe come up as a connection in the second half. So, uh. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, that is definitely one sticking point people have with uh, with the Bourdain uh, for sure. Well, there is uh, there's a little bit of context on the Criterion Blu-ray, which features an audio commentary, actually a couple audio commentaries, but one of them is Zweigoff 
talking to Ebert, and he talked about how one of Crumb's sisters was a, this is, this is her term, a, a militant lesbian, and would not allow any men in her house, uh, much less the film crew, but except for the son that she and her partner were raising. And yeah, uh, this is why I've suggested that, that he had his, the son had his own stories to tell of life in that branch of the Crumb family, but uh, uh, they, they are not in, in this film now. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that is interesting. I, 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 that's, I hear that's a really excellent commentary track too. that. Yeah. That conversation with Ebert. Ebert was a great audio commentary guy. Yeah, he really was. He really was. He did, did a few. Well, we, we have plenty of discussion uh, to do uh, with uh, documentary ethics and, and uh, missing characters uh from uh these documentaries uh so we'll we'll get hit that in our next episode uh when we talk about uh roadrunner uh but for now we'll move on to feedback now it's time for feedback where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film this week, we have a anything else in the world of film type voicemail from Bryce in Toronto, who wonders if we have a film that we considered an overlooked masterpiece. Bryce? This is Bryce from Toronto, a big fan of the show and a semi-frequent caller. Uh, I had a question for you. I was listening to you guys talk about The Graduate a week or two ago, and in my own personal opinion, there is a movie from around that era, I think released in 1968, called The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster which I'm sure most cinephiles have heard of, perhaps some have seen. And in my own personal opinion, it is just a shattering masterpiece, a beautiful piece of allegory, possibly Lancaster's best performance. And it has a really fascinating story you know, behind it. And I think that when you watch it today, removed from that context decades ago, in my own personal opinion, it's an undisputed masterpiece, and we should be talking about it, and it is as important to the era as The Graduate was. So the question is, could each of you share what is a film that meant a great deal to you and which you on some level cannot believe the world has not embraced and which didn't make it not because the quality wasn't there on the screen but because of other reasons outside of the film's control? Thanks, gang. Bye-bye. Genevieve, what about you? Yeah, um, I mean, I hesitate to, like, plant my flag that this is, like, undisputed masterpiece uh, overlooked by history, uh, especially in comparison to uh, the rest of this filmmaker's uh, work. But um, thinking in terms of films that, you know, weren't necessarily, like, understood or embraced in their era, but that continue to speak uh, to history, I thought of Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole which is a film that I think anyone, you know, uh, adjacent to the field of journalism has uh, probably uh, experienced at some point in, in their life. But, uh, you know, in terms of Billy Wilder's career was his first kind of big commercial and, and critical flop. We did it as a, a movie of the week at The Dissolve. So uh, I think we've all kind of talked uh, about Ace in the Hole quite a bit uh, in, in, in print. But I think it was it was the first thing that uh, came to mind for me here, just in the context of a filmmaker who has so many films under his belt that we do consider masterpieces. And uh, this one tends, I think, to get kind of passed over in the discussion because it was 
a bit of an anomaly just in terms of his career arc at the time and because it is such a, a cynical film <laughs> and but one that I think continues has continued resonance uh, maybe even more so as time goes on and as our uh, relationship with the the media ecosystem becomes ever more complicated I think there's a lot in the film to kind of still unpack all these decades later so that's my pick ace in the hole it's a good i mean that's a good one and because i think when you billy weiler's name comes up it, it's like it's double indemnity it's sunset boulevard you know it's something like it hot but this is a film that should be held at that level of esteem and it, it certainly was not at the time it was called it did they change it to the big carnival and then it, because i think yeah you, i think it was ice in the hole it was and then, released and then it, as, as the big carnival but big I, carnival. Yeah, I don't know when it went back ace of the hole uh, about a thousand times cooler a title than the big carnival uh, keith what about yourself mine will come in to no surprise to anyone who's been to my house which i don't think is a lot of our listeners actually <laughs> uh, but in which hangs a very large poster of a film called petulia directed by richard richard lester which is not in any way a forgotten or necessarily even neglected film it, it's it's held in high esteem um and you know received very fine reviews when it was released, but I don't know necessarily is quite uh, the canonical work that I feel it should be it is Lester of course is it will forever be best known for, for directing uh, hard days night and, and help. And, and this was a film he made after that. And it's, uh, you know, a far more serious film in, in, in many ways, but a lot of the sort of, um, innovations that you see in, in those films are, are, are edited as well. It's it's the story of uh, George C. Scott plays a, a, a divorcing San Francisco surgeon uh, who is kind of uh, set upon um, and and take, taken into the fold of a self-described kook, uh, the patchouli of the title, played by Julie Christie, and it's, it, it is filmed in nineteen, uh, you know, filmed in nineteen sixty seven, released in nineteen sixty eight. It, it is captures San Francisco of that era, uh, the Robert Crumb San Francisco. You could even say, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of preserves it. If in a lot of the bands of the era are, are from Janis Joplin to Grateful Dead are are featured in it and if it sounds like sort of a uh artifact of the the hippie moment uh in which a um kind of um you know liberated younger woman uh, uh gets an older guy to loosen up and enjoy life it is exactly not that <laughs> it is a, it is a very uh complicated film that begins as as just that and 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 depicts up uh new folds and new dimensions as it goes along it, it is um you know on a technical end uh, is i think it's nicholas rogue's last film is cinematographer it is a uh, beautiful features a great uh john barry score but the real trick to it is the editing which is um um precise and evoke you know and and really kind of emotionally affecting uh in ways you don't normally see as a huge influence on steven soderbergh it is where uh you know i don't think much of the soderbergh filmography as we know it would exist without this movie and that's one reason to watch it but i mean main reason to watch it, it's, it's a great movie and, and it gets me it, it gets me every time i, I see it and and uh, uh I, I always boost for uh for for Petulia. and a couple other lester films that i think are uh should, are underseen but I'll, I'll, I'll keep those as my I'll keep those as an ace in the hole you might say for, <laughs> for, for future episodes as well as the knack and how to get it uh, the neck, yeah, I've been, the neck was the neck was was it a pound of ore winner? I mean, it was, yeah, it was certainly yeah. well well known in, in its I, day, but it so, maybe so perhaps he, we could, perhaps not as seen now as uh, as often as it ought to be. 
So Keith, I told that story on Twitter recently that I saw Petulia thinking that I'd already seen it because mm. I confused it with Darling. Sure. Yeah. And I watched Petulia yeah. and I was like, within five minutes, I was like, no, I've not seen this film because <laughs> if I, I would know if I had seen this film. Yeah. And I, sw- I swear, I saw this film uh, for the first time. And it's one of the rare cases where I gave it five stars on Letterboxd because it absolutely blew me away. Usually I'm a little bit more cautious with my mm-hmm. first viewing, four and a half, maybe a masterpiece, we'll see. <laughs> and then later, but that was my first viewing, I gave it five stars. And I bring that up because uh, I gave five stars on Letterboxd uh, recently to a film that I have seen many times. And a friend of ours uh, questioned me about it on Twitter. Uh, and it's a little film called Ronin. Uh, by John Frankenheimer. Right. And so that would be my choice for my neglected masterpiece. It was not, you know, uh, a box office bust. It did a modest box office and it had a long life, I think, as a, a movie for guys who like movies uh, on, on TNT or TBS, wherever that used to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, a John Frankenheimer action film, magnificent European setting, French locations, Robert De Niro as the leader of a crew of criminals, Lots of double crosses and a script uncredited, but written by uh, David Mamet with just some really flavorful David Mamet dialogue. <laughs> um, and I can watch that movie anytime it comes on. I'll watch it all the way to the end. Five star uh, movie. Really. I, haven't even, I haven't thought about that one in a while. That's like, the, yeah, that is a, that's a great choice. If you're thinking of Frankenheimer, usually stuck in that in the 60s when he could just do no wrong <laughs> where every <laughs> single film he did was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of these films I have I have not seen, but it, but but if you look at this filmography, it, it's a burst of life, like a late career burst of life. I mean, it, it's sandwiched between The Island of Dr. Moreau, which of course is is infamous, yeah. <laughs> and, and Reindeer Games, which is uh, maybe has some defenders. I, I didn't care for the time. Yeah. Ronan, Ronan's yeah. fantastic, but I mean, the '80s were, you know, I mean, 1979 was Prophecy, which was a delightfully <laughs> loony movie, but but not not on, on uh, uh, quite the level of, of, of other Preckenheimer films. But in between, you get things like Dead Bang. The yeah. Holcroft Covenant. I mean, I, some of these I haven't seen, but, you know, it kind of came out of a, it was an unexpected uh, uh, masterpiece, I would say. For sure. Um, I guess the, 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 my, my choice would be the, uh, uh, the Albert Brooks film, uh, Modern Romance uh, from 1981. <laughs> um, I, I, of course, I always like to talk about Albert Brooks, but I think this, I think among the Albert Brooks films, it's, it's, uh, you know, not as recognized as it should be. Uh, one person who did recognize it as a masterpiece at the time was uh, Stanley Kubrick, who who uh, who call who who put in a surprise phone call to Albert Brooks and and asked him like, how did you do it? <laughs> how did you make this film? Which which Albert Brooks was completely flummoxed by. It's like you're the guy who made you know <laughs> you know two thousand one, and you're asking me how I made this movie. But but um, Modern Romance is so unique to me as kind of an sort of the ultimate anti-romantic comedy about it's about a relationship that is it begins with a, with a, a couple breaking up uh, Albert Brooks and Catherine Harold uh, are a, a couple that they break up in the be- in the very beginning of the movie and they and, and then the and then they kind of uh, you know get back together and break up again and it's it's a it's a relationship that is extraordinarily unhealthy uh, that is sustained by jealousy and need and a lot of the uglier sides of at least brooks's personality and it was another it was just a prime example of albert brooks as a writer director willing to make himself out as a as a movie character uh, to be unsympathetic and troubled and and um 
and full of uh, obsessions that were that did not put him in a great light and to me it's just it's uncompromising and true it's a, it's a film that i compared once in an essay for uh musings to raging bull uh, and i felt like the psychology between his character and, and jake lamata <laughs> in raging bull was not that far removed they just have had different ways of of expressing their ag- aggression but at the same time it is a film that is extraordinarily funny he's an editor in the movie uh and so it's got a lot of stuff of, <laughs> a lot of footage of him editing uh, a science fiction film that that james l brooks playing the director has directed with starring george kennedy uh and so it's got uh some fun fully i just think i'm just thinking hulk hulk, the hulk running noise yes <laughs> hulk running. That's yeah. the effect. Uh, so yeah in any case uh, it's it's a it's a great film and and uh it's formally really uh disciplined and unusual and it's just it's a it's a, it's like I think the his purest. I think it's his best film. Uh, really, it's the film of his that I think is is the purest and, and the most uncompromising. But I don't necessarily think it's the go to film for a lot of people. I think that tends to be more uh, Lost America or, or Defending Your Life. So um, that would be my pick. This is the backdoor pilot for Scott's uh, Albert Brooks spinoff podcast that he's clearly dying to do. <laughs> That's right. I know. I could. I could. I could have been really bold and, and made my choice uh, looking for comedy, the Muslim world, but uh, <laughs> I can't quite go to masterpiece level on that. But I do think it's quite good. Underrated. Very underrated. So we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three. or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, another documentary about a troubled rogue who became an unlikely public figure. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please enjoy other more perfectly goddamn delightful things in our culture. My paintings are famous and they're worth lots of dough. Pretty girls all hang around my gallery show. I'm as good with my paintbrush as I am with my lips. Stick around, honey, learn some aesthetic tips.